Good morning. Our scripture passage this morning is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. You can find those verses on your Blue Pew Bibles on page 834, and they are on screen for you to follow along, but I'll be reading in French. Donc, Luke chapitre 4, verset 1 à 13. Jésus, rempli du Saint-Esprit, revint du Jourdain et il fut conduit par l'Esprit dans le désert où il fut tenté par le diable pendant quarante jours. Il ne mangea rien durant ces jours-là et après qu'il fut récoulé, il eut faim. Le diable lui dit, « Si tu es le fils de Dieu, redonne à cette pierre qu'elle devienne du pain. » Jésus lui répondit, il est écrit, « L'homme ne vivra pas de pain seulement. » Le diable, l'ayant élevé, lui montra en un instant tous les royaumes de la terre et lui dit, je te donnerai toute cette puissance et la, et la gloire de ces royaumes, car elle m'a été donnée et je la donne à qui je veux. Si donc tu te prosternes devant moi, elle sera toute à toi. Jésus lui répondit, Jésus lui répondit il est écrit, tu adoreras le Seigneur, ton Dieu, et tu le serviras lui seul. Le diable lui conduisit encore à Jérusalem, le plaça sur le haut du temple et lui dit, si tu es le fils de Dieu, jette-toi d'ici en bas car il est écrit. Il donnera des ordres à ses anges à ton sujet, afin qu'ils te gardent, et, et ils te porteront sur les mains, de peur que ton pied ne heurte contre une pierre. Jésus lui répondit, il est dit, tu ne tenteras point le Seigneur ton Dieu. Après l'avoir tenté de toutes ces manières, le diable s'éloigna de lui jusqu'à un moment favorable. La parole de Dieu, Word of God. Good morning, everyone. It is a privilege to stand before you again and open God's word with you all. My name is Joy Kwai Pan, and I serve as one of the pastors here in First Alliance Church. Now, this morning, as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, I highly encourage you to have your Bibles open before you because we believe in the authority of the word of God, and we want to submit to that authority. So you can also utilize the bulletin insert, which is in your bulletin, and I want you to be able to see the main points in this sermon. Now, I don't know if any of you have noticed, but we did something a little bit different this morning. We just uh, heard scripture read to us in French. On the PowerPoint, it was written in English, but it was read to us in French. Now, the reason I wanted to do this is because God's word is for all nations and God's mission is for the whole world, not just Canada. And here in First Alliance Church, we want to welcome the nations to Jesus. So just by inserting that little language reading gives us a foretaste of what heaven will be like when all languages, when all different cultures, when all different tribes and nations will worship at the feet of Jesus. And in the meantime, while we're still here on the planet Earth, we can do many rehearsals like what we just did. Amen? So for this sermon, 
I've entitled today's sermon simply as the temptation of Jesus. You can, of course, read this in your own Bibles in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13 in English. And if you're new and you're not quite familiar with the Bible yet, you can use the Blue Pew Bibles, and it's on page 834. So this morning, we're going to look at a very critical moment in Jesus' life when he was tempted. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit that whenever I hear that word temptation, it often makes me feel uncomfortable. And sometimes, while being tempted, we often feel ashamed or even shocked, as if we're encountering something strange that shouldn't happen to us. But I have news for you this morning. All of us face temptations, regardless of who you are, or where you are in your faith journey, and probably until the very last days of our lives, because the ability to be tempted is part of being human. So today's scripture passage allows us to see Jesus as fully human, and in his moment of deep hunger, in his moment of vulnerability and weakness, he faced temptation. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says that Satan is always on the prowl. He is like a roaring lion, and he's always looking for someone to devour. So failure is the goal of temptation, and it is, the, and it is authored by the devil. Now, the devil has had many, many centuries of practice observing humanity's behavior. He knows when to strike you where to strike you, and how long to strike you in that temptation. And it's usually during a time of weakness, during a time of deep vulnerability, or during a time when you're feeling very secure or when you're feeling safe. That's when Satan decides to strike you. So this passage that we're going to look at today is really crucial to pay attention to. But I come before you this morning, I'm not going to bring a methodology Uh, I don't want you to think that I'm going to preach about a formula of victory. But rather, this is about a person, Jesus. I want us to focus our eyes on Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is, because he is our victory over death, over sin, and over every temptation. So let's just pause here for a moment, and I'd I'd like to invite you to pray with me. O Lord Jesus, may we behold you afresh as we open your word today. Through you, Jesus, the living word, we have already overcome. We thank you, Jesus, that you enable us through your Holy Spirit and through your word to share in your victory. Amen. So I want to start with the context. Jesus' baptism is the context of our text this morning. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And as Jesus was praying, as he was coming out, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That was Jesus' baptism. That's our context. Now, according to Levitical law, which is the law of Moses, 
Baptism was a way for Jews to cleanse themselves from any ritual impurities. So the act of washing primarily fulfilled the legal requirements of ritual purity so that any Jew could sacrifice at the temple. You have to be cleansed first before you do that. Baptism was also a way for Gentiles. A Gentile is a non-Jew to express their desire to be part of the covenant people of God. Baptism was a sign of conversion. It was a sign of cleansing, cleansing themselves from idol worship and renouncing past allegiances and beliefs to pagan gods and embracing their new life. So baptism was a rite of passage for outsiders so that they can be insiders and be part of the people of God. But Jesus, however, was sinless. He didn't need any ritual cleansing. He's, he's pure. He's clean. And he didn't need to express a desire to want to be part of the people of God because he is God. But his baptism identified himself with humanity, every single one of us. Jesus got baptized with outsiders, both the Jews and the Gentiles, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Roman soldiers, farmers, the accountants, all kinds of people, all of us, so he can usher them. He can usher us inside his kingdom and ask and bring about our forgiveness through his death. So his baptism was not about repentance, cleansing, or conversion, but about his identity his identity as the Messiah. Jesus was inaugurating and ushering in a new kingdom that John the Baptist was preaching about. He was the herald to royalty, paving the way for this new king, King Jesus. So that's our context. And then right after his baptism, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 begins by describing Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returning from the River Jordan and led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days Jesus was tempted by the devil. Now what startled me in this verse was that the Holy Spirit actually led Jesus into the desert, into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Do you see that in your Bibles? He was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So I had to ask myself, why did he have to be tempted? You see, the incarnation, which means God coming in the flesh, required that the Son of God, Jesus, to empty himself of his divine privileges and also be fully human. Jesus, when he became incarnate, did not stop becoming fully God, but he is also fully human, but not using the power of the divine. He's not using his power as God to gratify his human needs. Therefore, if Jesus is also fully human, Jesus must also possess the ability to be tempted just like us, and identifying with humanity to the fullest extent. Did you get that? He needed to be tempted because it was part of being human. So Jesus was filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit when he entered the wilderness. Jesus was spirit-filled in his humanity, and he is then led by the same Holy Spirit after his baptism 
into the wilderness. So the verb used here is the word led or to be led in the infinitive form. And if you're that kind of person, you like looking at grammatical structures in the Bible, this piece of information may be interesting to you. The verb led in the, is in the imperfect tense in the Greek language, which means that the Spirit was with Jesus continuously and led him during these 40 days. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't just cast off Jesus into the desert and left him there to struggle with the, with the devil alone. Rather, the Holy Spirit continuously led Jesus in the desert for the full duration of the 40 days. Fully human, Jesus was fully human. He wasn't left alone, but he was filled by the Holy Spirit throughout the entire time. And I want you to know this is a crucial, crucial thing to remember. Jesus never did anything apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit in his humanity. So Jesus went to the desert. He fasted for 40 days. And after the 40 days was over, he was hungry, like famished. And then he was also very vulnerable and weak. And that's when Satan decided to strike. Now, the reference of 40 days in this account, according to a commentary I read, is in parallel comparison to the 40 years that the people of Israel spent wandering in the wilderness due to their obedience. But just stuck that at the back of your mind for now, and we'll link it. We'll link this later on. So knowing that Jesus was weak at this point, Satan throws his first punch, his first temptation. This is what he says. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now the first temptation, it seems pretty simple on the surface level, right? Turn the stones into bread. Jesus was weak, and he was very hungry after fasting. And Satan offers him a quick solution to feed his hunger. Turn the stones into bread. That was a solution. In other words, do something supernatural. Use magic, because you're God, right? You know, the devil's suggestion will provide instant gratification. And you know what? It also seems logical, especially when you're hungry. After all, Jesus is also fully God. So why not use the privilege of being divine, right? But using magic and Jesus' power and privileges as divine, as God, compromises his humanity, therefore disqualifying him as the Messiah. See, what the devil really wanted was to cheat Jesus out of his identity and qualification as the Messiah. So this temptation is so much more than just fulfilling the desires of the flesh. There is a subtle, very subtle underlying temptation here as well. Notice that the devil slyly begins by saying, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. I italicized the word if on the screen. The devil didn't say, you hungry boy? Turn these stones into bread. That's not what he said. He said, rather, the devil frames this temptation by creating doubt. 
he created doubt by using a condition of reality. The if at the beginning questions the fact. Do you see that? If you are the son of God. Now I want you to know that Satan uses the same technique of doubt found in uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. You can turn there or you can just simply look at the screen. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, when Satan or the, the serpent was talking to the woman, he said to her, did God, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So Satan created doubt and he demanded that Jesus give him proof of his sonship by turning the stones into bread. So let me put it this way. I'll reframe it so that you can hear the subtle nuance. If you really are the son of God, the son of God, how could he, your heavenly father, allow you, if you are indeed his son, to be hungry? Doubt. Turn these stones into bread. Now, if you recall Jesus' baptism, that's what we looked at, the context, Luke chapter 3, the Father's voice was loud and, loud and clear. God the Father declared the sonship of Jesus by saying, you are my beloved son, son with a capital S. But Satan here in his temptation, he boldly questions the authority and truth of God's word and minimized that declaration, just as he did in Genesis with Adam. Do you see that? Did God really say, if you are the son of God, put these two temptations side by side and notice the similarity. He was casting doubt. Now in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, the first Adam failed that temptation by believing the doubt. And throughout the ages, casting doubt is still Satan's favorite ploy to use on God's people, especially if you have a need or you have an unfulfilled desire. It becomes very effective. The devil casts doubt on God's love and his ability to provide for you by saying that if God really loves you, why are you this or why are you that? Why are you single or why are you divorced? Why do you not have a job? Why this? Why that? Uh, do you see how it goes? And he creates doubt. Doubt is a very effective demonic strategy and Satan uses this so that we no longer trust our identity based on God's authoritative word and his ability to provide for our needs. Doubt. But Jesus answered him and he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. He said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but, from it, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice, because I put it in, uh, in um, parenthesis there, that Jesus' reply is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. This book, the book of Deuteronomy, was written by Moses, addressed to Israel at a time in their history when Israel was sustained by manna. Manna is like bread. This is a time in the history of Israel when they were sustained by manna in the wilderness. God provided for their physical needs even in the wilderness. The book of Deuteronomy is addressed, was addressed to the generation born in the wilderness 
as they were just about to enter the promised land and they needed assurance of God's protection. They needed assurance of God's provision. Jesus' need for food was similar to that of Israel. Jesus was in the wilderness. He had no access to Tim Hortons, an iced cappuccino, and a medium double-double. But unlike the people of Israel, Jesus trusted that God had provided for Israel in the wilderness, so he also, his heavenly Father, would also provide for him. Now, if you're familiar with Israel's story in the book of Exodus, they sinned by doubting. They doubted, they complained, they murmured instead of trusting God's provision, God's word and his provision. The Israelites, instead, they wanted to obtain their own food their own way. You know what their way was? They wanted to go back to Egypt and get their food and be enslaved all over again instead of trusting God for their provision. That story is found in Exodus chapter 16, and I've noted that reference in your bulletin insert, so you can look it up later. But let's pick it up in verse 5. Satan did not give up. He had another trick up his sleeve. This was going to be round two. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and shows him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And instantly, Jesus could see all the empires and all the kingdoms of his days and the possibility of power, the possibility of wealth easily within his reach. And in this temptation, I want you to notice that Satan claims both the ownership and the ability to give power and material wealth to anyone he chooses to give it to. Do you see that? Now, part of this lie is that Satan wants you to think that he alone controls power and material rewards, and that the only way to get rich, the only way to get power is his way, but that is a lie. The other way is to trust God and to serve him in good times and bad times, and to wait for him to lift you up in his time if he is willing. Let me give you some examples. Abraham, uh, God gave wealth to Abraham and Job. He gave wealth and power to King David and to his son Solomon. And then there's Joseph, whom God lifted up from prison and became second only to Pharaoh. God lifted up the prophet Daniel and gave him a position of authority and wealth in a secular kingdom. And there are many more examples in scripture where God bestows power and wealth to his servants according to his will and according to his time. The devil said to Jesus, all of this will be yours if you bow down, if you worship me. What is the underlying significance of this temptation? You see, the devil wants the worship that is due to God alone. And what Satan wants here is for Jesus to bow down and worship him and forsake the path that the heavenly Father laid out for Jesus, which is the cross. And in verse 8, Jesus again answers with scripture, again from the book of Deuteronomy, and he said, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus' reply is taken again from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus understood 
and knew that power was important to his mission as the Messiah. He needed that. But it must be power bestowed to him by his Father and under the leading of the Holy Spirit, not worldly power. Now, I want you to note the consequences of this temptation. Had Jesus accepted the offer of the devil, our salvation would have been sabotaged. Scripture teaches us that the Messiah must first suffer and die and only then enter into his glory. By tempting Jesus with worldly power, Satan was actually preventing Christ's voluntary death on the cross for our sins. The implication of the second temptation was the avoidance of the cross. The first temptation was about his identity as the Messiah, so Jesus would forsake the cross. You see, the cross is a hard way with pain and glory and bloodshed. Satan's way had no suffering and no shame. It was easy peasy. Now, I want you to note that Jesus was tempted on two occasions to prevent him from dying on the cross. One is his temptation in the wilderness. That's our text today. And the other one is in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, just before he went to the cross. And we see in both circumstances that Jesus had a choice. He is fully human, so he had a choice. He had a free will. And in both these circumstances, Jesus chose his Father's will over what the temptation had to offer. But notice that in both these separate occasions of temptation, that Jesus, although still fully God, did not use his divinity. He didn't use any supernatural resources for his immediate gratification. He could have, you know, he could have, but he chose not to in order not to compromise his mission as the Messiah. Jesus did not use any supernatural resources or weapons to overcome temptation. He didn't even bring a knife home to the wilderness. Instead, Jesus was continuously led by the Holy Spirit, and he trusted the word of God, and he chose his Father's will to offer his life on the cross instead of the easy way out. This was another victory. But again, the devil did not give up. Satan picked it up a notch higher. He led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And this time, the devil quotes scripture to Jesus taken from the book of Psalms. He said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus' implication is that if Jesus were to jump off the temple to the pavement far below, that he wouldn't be injured because angels would catch him. That would be the ultimate PR stunt. And Jesus would be instantly famous and he would be acclaimed Messiah easily on the spot because of that stunt. And on top of that, there would be no suffering, there would be no shame. See, the devil was tempting Jesus with fame and popularity without suffering and no shedding of blood because angels were going to catch him. 
Therefore, that would mean no forgiveness of sin because Hebrews 9.22 verse said that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This was a pretty serious temptation. Imagine the eternal impact for all of us today had Jesus done that. Satan wants us to sacrifice the eternal for the temporary. And Satan tries to subvert our walk with God by offering shortcuts to spirituality, which are really dead ends. That's why learning how to suffer well, not avoiding suffering, is part of our Christian journey, and it's part of our missional witness to a world that does not know the authority of Jesus yet. And this time, Jesus also answered with scripture. Jesus answered the devil, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to test. In other words, Jesus said, don't take some irrational action that forces God's hand and seek to manipulate God to do what he otherwise would not wish to do just to prove that he cares. Now, the passage that Jesus was quoting from when he answered the devil is again taken from Deuteronomy. And it's referred to a time in uh, in Israel's history when the Israelites forced God to act when they were thirsty in the wilderness. The reference is in Exodus chapter 17, and again, I noted noted that down in your bulletin insert in your notes. The Israelites tested God in a place called Massa by refusing to accept that God was indeed among them until he gave them a sign. You know, there's this kind of insistent unbelief in this sort of testing. No matter what, they would have still doubted God anyway, no matter how much God provided. Now, I want you to look at these temptations side by side. Note that in these three temptations, Satan uses three ifs, three if statements that I want you to notice. The first if is one of despairing doubt of your identity in Christ. Doubt in God's provision and in his care. The first if is, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. The second if is one of spiritual compromise. If you bow down and worship me, all this will be yours. In other words, take the easy way road. Don't suffer. You don't need to. Satan is offering a cheap and easy alternative, the cross without suffering. And the third if is one of immediate popularity of self-exaltation and manipulation to test God. If you throw yourself down, God will send his angels to catch you. It is the lure of manipulation. And with each temptation, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit and God's word, overcame each one. Now, temptations are battles in the heavenly realms. It is a war for your souls. It's not a matter of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Oh, I'll just pick mo. It's not that. Temptation is Satan's weapon to defeat us, but it can become God's tool to build us up and transform us into the image of his son, Jesus. Every time Satan is resisted, he flees. But don't be fooled. He only comes back for uh, for a season. He only comes back and he flees for a season. He is persistent and he wants us to fail. Look at verse 13. 
Jesus was constantly tempted and harassed by the devil in every opportunity throughout his entire time on earth. So don't expect less, because Jesus had it. Even when Jesus hung on the cross, all these three temptations with their accompanying if statements were spread out before him. Let's look at Matthew 27, verses 39 to 43. Jesus was on the cross, on the cross already, not heading to the cross. And he was still being tempted to abdicate his father's will. Can you imagine? So let's look at all the the ifs. Verse 39, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their head and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. The first if, doubt. Now in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. That's the second if. Spiritual compromise. Get off the cross and then we'll believe you. And verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. That's the third if. The lure of manipulating God's hand and testing God and persistent unbelief. The devil came back over and over again, even when Jesus was already hanging on the cross. But you know what? The resurrection silenced him, and his defeat was finally sealed when he rose again from the dead after three days. Amen? This temptation account has huge ramifications for us today. If Jesus had not defeated the devil privately, During his time alone in the wilderness, do you think that the demons would have shuddered, shake, or obey when they saw Jesus publicly? Do you think they're going to do that? I don't think so. Jesus' private victory had a huge impact on his public ministry. That's why this temptation account is crucial for us to understand and to internalize because private victories impact our public witness and ministry. Your private choices and your private decisions impact your public witness. You know, the demonic realm shook when they saw and felt the presence of Jesus. Creation obeyed and sicknesses no more had power over their victims. Demons obeyed Jesus without any arguments because they knew who was standing before them. This is authority, the living word himself, Jesus. Now, like Jesus in his humanity, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we need to know the Bible well so that we don't twist it and we don't make it, make it suit our needs and bring half-truths to the table That's so that we can feel good about ourselves. That's what the devil did. That's why we do investigative manuscript Bible studies and expository preaching in this church. Because we need to be under the authority of the word of God so that we don't get to pick and choose 
God's word anchors us in our identity as God's children and not doubt that truth that God has already declared over us. He has declared his truth over our lives already. Now today as we come together to the Lord's table and Holy Communion to partake of the bread and the wine, let us also be mindful to remember his sacrifice on the cross and his victory. Jesus has triumphed and he is victorious over every sin, over every temptation and even death. Amen. So at this point, I'd like to invite those serving communion and the worship team to come back up.